All right, well, this is, this is really novel because I am a teacher. I teach nine and 10 year olds. And um, they don't just sit and keep quiet waiting for me to say something. Um, I, I have to do some things to get their attention. So we either do a little clapping thing and then they clap back or we love to say hocus pocus and then they shout, everybody focus. <laughs> or uh, my favorite is I say waterfall and they go shh. <laughs> so uh, this is the tactics we have to use as, as primary school teachers. So it's lovely just to have this death deathly silence without having to work for it or do anything very super exciting to uh, catch everybody's attention. Um, so we're going to start, we're going to launch uh, with a little story that is in 1 Samuel at the end of it. Um, I'm focusing on, on David, Samuel's mostly about David um, and Saul. Um, and I, I really admire David. He first of all, is a musician, which I can relate to and appreciate. Um, the Bible says he's, he's a good musician, which is why Saul asks him to come and play in the palace. Um, he clearly has a way with words. Um, he wrote a lot of the Psalms, and we can appreciate a lot of what, how he expresses emotions in the Psalms. Um, he's really, really good at fighting. It seems that whatever battle he goes into, he wins hands down, people praise him all over the show, he's got a reputation for being a fantastic fighter. Um, and when he's anointed as a young boy, we're told that the Spirit of God entered David like a rushing wind, God virtually empowering him, sorry, vitally empowering him for the rest of his life. So he's got a lot that's, all, that's really, really going well for him. Um, so this is at the end of Samuel, 1 Samuel 30, and this little tale starts, well, I'm going to start from verse 1. Three days later, David and his men arrived back in Ziglag. That's where they were staying, by the way. Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziglag. They tore Ziglag to pieces and then burned it down. They captured all the women, young and old. They didn't kill anyone but drove them like a herd of cattle. By the time David and his men entered the village, it had been burned to the ground, and their wives, sons, and daughters, all taken prisoners. David and his men burst out in loud wails, wept and wept until they were exhausted with weeping. David's two wives, Anna Noam of Jezreel and Abigail, widow of Nabal of Carmel, had been taken prisoner along with the rest. And then suddenly David was even in worse trouble. There was talk among the men, bitter of the loss of their families, of stoning him. So we can see here that things are looking really bleak. And in fact, David had returned from something that wasn't very easy in the first place. He was running away from Saul again, and he had negotiated with the local king of of Gath or Gath, and to stay and um, sort of camp on the side there. Um, and the local king had initially chased David away and then had agreed that, that he, can, he can stay there. 
and because he was so good at fighting, um, he, was, he was useful. But then um, the king got flack from the Philistines for, um, for fighting with David, and he did a political flip-flop and basically said to David, look, we can't fight with each other anymore. This, this alliance is, is not, is, is not going to work for us. Um, so David had just returned from, from all that drama, only to have this, this massive drama unfold. So then what did David do? And then it says in the Bible, David strengthened himself with trust in his God. So I would love to have David here and say to him, well, what, what does that look like? What exactly did you, did you do? Did you say? Did you feel? Did you, how did you make that shift from the wailing and the weeping and the exhaustion and the, the other parts that are all described here? It's, it's intriguing. Um, and the situation really resonates with me. Um, I've been walking through some incredibly difficult years in the last few years. Um, about four and a half years ago, my family have had an incredible crisis. Um, and it's resulted in basically every member of my family being in incredible pain and loss um, and really struggling with depression and uncertainty and not being in a great place. So my margins are really thin and when other things happen, you know, when Kira and Dylan get tied up in my house and, and robbed and then when, when COVID hits and all the challenges of that, there are many, many moments when it just feels like the village is on fire and there's just pain and loss. Um, after a while, I actually went to see a psychologist who uh, referred me to a psychiatrist and I had to sign a piece of paper to say that I'm suffering from depression so that the medical aid could pay and, and help pay for the psychiatrist and help pay for the, the medication that I was going to need to be on. And I remember thinking, this is the most humbling thing I've ever had to do is to actually sign this piece of paper. Um, because you, I, I, on Facebook, you will have things that say, you know, you don't need to be a perfect teacher, just a happy teacher. <laughs> don't need to be a perfect mom, just, just a happy mom. And so it really reinforced the, the thought of, well, how am I going to carry on with any of my responsibilities if, if I am depressed? and I actually have to admit it on a piece of paper and sign it. Um, shortly into this huge crisis, I spent time praying, and God gave me a picture of an enormous red dragon sitting next to me. And we were on top of a hill, looking down, and everything was burning. There were just people burning things everywhere. And I remember the sense of thinking, well, God has the power to go and sort this, these people out. 
one, one blow of fire and all these people will flee. And then the problem will be solved here. And this real piece of God saying, we're going to wait. And I must say, God's idea of a long time and waiting and my idea of waiting in a long time really don't always match up. I'm almost five years in and going, but there's still such a mess. Things are still not sorted. How can this be? Um, what, a, what a long wait. But the other sense I had is God saying, I'm going to be with you. I will be with you. Last year, a child of mine in the, in the class um, bought little Kinder Joy chocolates for her birthday. They're the, the lovely eggs that have the Nutella-type chocolate and then a, a weird toy in the other side. Anyway, so I was very happy to receive this. I gobbled up the chocolate instantly. And I opened up the toy to find a nice red dragon head. And, yeah, I've kept it. Because <laughs> it felt like God saying, listen to my story and basically said, wow, this is a mess. This, this situation is really a mess. Um, so we can, I can identify with David. Yet David must have known a thing or two about trust. He was the one who wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me by quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. When we look at David's life, not everything has gone peachy in it. He had been through some stuff. He was working for King Saul as a musician. And King Saul had become very, very jealous. And was there were two or three times at least where King Saul had thrown a spear at David. I don't know about you, but when my boss starts throwing spears at me, I think that's a deal breaker. You need to leave. <laughs> Not only that, but King Saul actually became his father-in-law. Because King Saul had this idea that if he married David off, he could um, send David into battle to earn the position, and maybe some enemies would kill off David. Um, of course, David was a good fighter, and God was with him, so that's not how things worked out. But um, So David lands up spending a lot of his life running away from Saul and trying to protect his own life. His life was actually in danger from someone close. So these enemies, these giants, he seemed to have handled really, really well. But his father-in-law, his, his employer, the father of his best, best, best friend was the one pursuing him and, and trying to kill him. 
Um, and even when he had an opportunity to actually kill Saul and end this problem, he, he, he felt that he couldn't do that to God's anointed. And then he had to run again. So he spends a lot of time worrying and a lot of time worrying for, for his life. He went through the, the death of his really, really close friend of, of Jonathan. Um, and then even when Saul died, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David dragged on, says 2 Samuel 3 verse 1. So that didn't end that, that problem. Then he really messed up. He fell in love with Bathsheba. He had, he had her husband killed. He messed up badly. His teeny tiny son that he had with Bathsheba died. Then his other children, when they were grown up, the one son raped his daughter. Then a major, he had a major rift with another son of his who also sent armies out to kill him. David manages to outlive the son, but then is in great mourning for that son as well. So this is not a picture of a happy family life. This is not the picture of things going very smoothly, despite the fact that the Spirit of God is on him, the fact that he is destined to become Jesus in Jesus' lineage. Hectic things happen. And I think sometimes we, we, all, we all think and hope that we're not going to have hectic things happen. That because God is on us, things are not going to happen like this. But they do, and they happen to loads of you. Whether you've been in hospital with COVID, or in fires, or near-death experiences and health issues and financial issues and hectic things happen. So what does David do after the Bible says he strengthened himself with trust? He says, bring me the ephod so I can consult with God. Abiathar brought it to David. Then David prayed to God, shall I go after these raiders? Can I catch them? The answer came, go after them, yes, you'll make the rescue. So he goes, he meets an Egyptian who is a slave of the Amalekites who takes him to the people who raided him and he recovered everything that was stolen and returns and then manages to share out the plunder with even the neighboring elders. So I looked up what an ephod is because I didn't know. Um, it's a piece of clothing but not just clothing, it was made out of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn. Um, it had two onk stones fastened to the shoulder pieces and the tribes inscribed on the stones. Um, it was given to Aaron when he was made the high priest. So it was really a way of calling in the high priest's presence to be the mediator between you and God. Now, we don't, 
thankfully when we're in trouble, we don't have to call a high priest or call on Wayne every single time any of us are experiencing any trouble. Because Jesus made sure that we have direct access. We don't have to go through clothing and people to have access. Um, so we can call on Jesus immediately. We can call on God. We can call on the Holy Spirit. Um, and we can too can ask questions. So I looked a little bit at, at fear because it kind of seems to be in opposition of trust. Apparently, according to Google, now I don't know how, how um, reliable this is because you can't read everything. You can't believe everything you read. Anyway, apparently, the words fear not or something that tells us not to fear occurs 365 times in the Bible. So there's a lot of messages about not worrying and not fearing. Now, I don't know about you, but when people tell me, oh, don't worry about it, and it's a big worry for me, when they say, no, don't worry, it doesn't help calm me down. In fact, I usually go, hmm, so these are people I shouldn't tell about my worries. <laughs> that is usually what happens when I'm told not to worry. Or if we're told 365 times not to worry, we don't need a guilt response. I mean, I've, I've always battled with worry, even as a, as a little girl. Um, I'm very prone to worrying. Um, so, but I thought of it in this way. If somebody said to me, don't be hungry, go and eat, I wouldn't be guilty that I, that I get hungry. But it would be really, really stupid of me, particularly since I have lots of access to food, um, if I just stayed hungry and I did nothing when I was hungry and I just remained hungry. So for me, worrying is a signal. And it's like hunger pains are a signal that I need to go and eat. Worry for me is a sign that I need to spend time with God. I need to get close to Him. Be that in the middle of the night, which is usually when worry really plays on one's mind at two in the morning. I love the fact I noticed the Good Good Father song that we sung spoke about whispers in the, in, the, in the dark of night and that he whispers that we're never alone because um, in the dark of night that is really when our worries play, play on us. As, according to some psychologists, there, there are two types of worries that we can have. The first is a worry or problem that we have right now. It's happening right it's unfolding right there. So we're either facing an immediate lack or we lack wisdom because we need to problem solve. So for example, one, one day Dylan and I went shopping, it was years ago, and then we found that we couldn't find the car keys. And it dawned on Dylan that as he walked into Cresta, he'd picked up litter 
along the way, and had thrown the litter and the car key into the dustbin. So we raced off back to the dustbin, but the Cresta cleaning staff had emptied it out. So we spent ages trying to, um, we, tr we, we spent ages trying to uh, track down who, where does the rubbish go. There was, there's even a big room in Cresta where they load all the rubbish together. Um, yeah, we didn't have many alternatives. We didn't have spares for that, that car. Long story, it went to England, it came back, it didn't pass standards there, so it was sent back. Um, so we didn't have a spare, and we found out that uh, somebody could bring us another way to open the, the car in, in three days' time. But, uh, so we had no option but to cry out to God and lo and behold, before we were con contemplating going through the rubbish in the large room of, at Cresta, um, a cleaner came forward and produced the car key that, that they had found in the dustbin. Um, so there was an immediate problem. The other kind of worry is really one that, that plagues us a lot, and that's worry about what is going to happen in the future. So sometimes we, we don't have the problem immediately, but we fear the problem in the future. So um, the, the psychologists say that we like to worry because it actually feels like we're doing something. So it gives us this false sense of we're really on top of something that's out of our control. Um, there's a quote, though, by Irma Bombeck that, said, that says, worry is a, walk, a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it never gets you anywhere. <laughs> Things that are unpredictable or uncertain really disturb us. And some of us have a very low tolerance for uncertainty. I work with quite a few children where it's very important to warn them in the day if something is not going to go according to the timetable. And a lot of teachers are like that too, that if, if they're going to be curveballs, they need a lot of advance warning. Otherwise, you see a very bad side of them. So many of us don't like uncertainty. We just crave things that are predictable, things that are in our control. Jesus said in Matthew, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So now this doesn't mean that we've got to like squash those emotions or pretend that they're not there or numb ourselves, which frankly is, is what we try and do quite a lot. Watch more TV, flick through social media, find something else to think about, have a drink, these are some of the, the tactics that people use, but when we have a strong emotion and we ignore it, <clears throat> it's very much like having a beach ball that you're holding underwater. It takes a lot of effort, and most of the time it just pops up. 
Philippians says, don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. And before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. So strengthening ourselves with trust definitely has something to do with coming to God in our state of worry. And I must say, in the last few years, the good thing about a crisis is it does drive you to God. So I can definitely say that if I look back and go, well, six, seven years ago, I would look back and say, I think I was coasting along quite a lot in comparison to the last few years where worry pops up very often or the sense of just, I'm overwhelmed. It's too much. Not another thing. And it's amazing and I've had amazing times with God, concentrating on how he's with me, thinking about Emmanuel, God with me. Sometimes when I'm worried, I I sing songs. Anything that comes to mind, sing worship songs. I like to thank God and remember all the amazing things he's done for me in the past and there seems to be a pattern of that. He, he instructs the, the, his, his special people to remember how they came out of the desert, how they were rescued after the, the Dead Sea and they were res, rescued, uh, sorry, the Red Sea and they were rescued from the Egyptians and the plagues that they survived and the years and years of slavery. And there's many, many times when they look back at, at what's God What has God done? The amazing things that God has done. So whether I look back and think of how I'm working at a school that I initially never applied on working there, and I had no job for a while, and there was no prospect of a job, and I went to interviews, and I handed out my CV to some schools, and I went to interviews, and the one interview I was very excited about But they phoned me up three weeks later and they said, we like the look of you, but we really don't have a place for you. And I thought to myself, because I tend to be a little oversensitive, oh, they're just being nice, I'm being dismissed. They said, well, one um, one of the teacher's spouses has a recruitment set up, so she, she has, she finds teachers for schools. Would you like us to pass your CV on to her? And I remember saying, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'll I'll sort it out. Thanks. Um, But it turned out that that school did pass on my CV. And it did land up somewhere. And one strange day, I got a phone call. And asked to come to an interview at Rodine. And I'd never been there. And I thought it was definitely a school for snobs. So I couldn't... (laughs) which is why I hadn't applied to the place at all. Um, And so it began a long journey of working for a school I never applied to. 
Jesus really likes us to depend on him. And that's obvious when we look at something like the Lord's Prayer, where we're encouraged to pray for our daily bread, not for the bread that's going to come next week um, or in any other time. So if, if you guys with your small children were feeding your, your children supper and they suddenly started to keep their supper and, and hide it in a Tupperware and go and put it in, in their rooms and you said to them, you know, why, what are you doing? Why are you stashing your supper in your rooms? And they say, well, we're not sure whether you're going to give us supper tomorrow. You would take offense. You would think, well, why wouldn't I give them supper tomorrow or the next day? And our relationship with God is very much like that, his provision for that moment. Think of the Israelites wandering around in the desert and having to rely on manna. And the manna only lasted for that day. It went, it went off. The only time it didn't go off was when they could collect it for two days so that they could um, not collect manna on the Sabbath. But other than that, they had to do with that for the day. So these, these things that we worry about in the future are often things that we need to ask ourselves, well, what's, what, what's behind these fears? And can we bring those, that lack, to, to God? God loves us to ask him for things. He loves to hear our voice. And it's very much like when, you know, you know let's say it this way. So I think we think we... Asking is a bit of a problem. We, we don't like asking people for things. We feel like a burden. We feel like we worry people. We, we're adding to their loads. But God doesn't really have a load. He's all powerful. So he's not exhausted or um, busy doing his own thing that he couldn't cope with us coming to ask him for something. Um, Unlike us, we, we get tired, we run out of energy, and then we grumpy when people approach us. But it makes me think of how I, how I am about teaching maths. So um, Dylan had some visitors over about two, three weeks ago from America, and they said, oh, you're a maths teacher, just like Dylan was a maths teacher. Um, what part of maths is your favorite part of maths? So I said to them, um, it's not really the maths that excites me. It's when I can see that people understand the maths. Now that excites me. When children go, oh, I get it now. Or if they ask me a question where I've taught something and they go, but what if this and this and this and this? What about if we took this number? Wow, that excites me. And sometimes, on a very rare occasion, a child will come running in the morning before I've even unpacked my belongings to ask me a maths question. Now, it usually only happens if there's a maths test <laughs> in the horizon, not because they were just doing nothing in the afternoon and 
thinking about maths. Um, but I promise you, if they want to have a chat to me in the, in the morning about maths, I'm ready, I'm willing, I'm excited. I'm there. They come to complain to me about all their friends and their fighting and they're unlikely to say, I wonder who's on duty. Maybe you should go tell that teacher rather. But the maths questions I will do before school, after school, during break, anytime when a child comes and says, you know, please explain this to me. I even once had one child who came from a different grade. I didn't teach this person maths, but she couldn't find her own maths teacher. So she came to ask me some maths questions. And I was very excited and very eager to answer all her maths questions. Um, because I am always looking for that opportunity where children go, wow, you know, that really makes sense. And there's something about maths that makes people, you go, wow, or you can see a blank face very quickly. You teach English, you don't get that instant response. But maths makes it happen. And when it happens, it's super exciting. So God is like that. He loves us to come. He loves us to rely on Him and to show that, that we know that we can depend on Him to provide. That He is our provider. So, a lot of my journey with worry has also been looking at my lifestyle and looking at, am I making space for God? Because connecting with God sometimes feels a lot like connecting with the Wi-Fi. <laughs> Depending on circumstances, you can get a really good connection sometimes. And there are other times when it just feels like everything's buffering and you're getting nothing. <laughs> and a lot of that has to do with how frazzled we are, how much hurry we have in our life, how much we're running around and how much noise we have. So on a, on a normal school day, when I come home, my mind is buzzing. I've had 44 people asking me questions and demanding things of me, and they're not always about math. Sometimes it's just irritations, like they can't find a pencil, or they didn't bring their homework yet again. Um, apparently, teachers make 1,500 decisions a day. I don't know, are we veering off our lesson plans that much? <laughs> Anyway, I come home, I, I am shot. When I talk to God, it feels like that slow buffering happening. But come on, on a retreat with Lynn, and it feels like you've got the real quick internet happening. It, it astounds me how you sit down and it feels like God just starts talking immediately. So when we, when we make space for God and we, we make space in our lives to be with Him and to praise Him and to pray, and we're not rushing around. I mean, Dallas Willard said to lots of people, 
that if they, if they want to build a spiritual life, they need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from their life. He said, hurry is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life. So, it's great to give God space and to give God that quiet. Even if at, the moment, at that moment we don't experience something amazing happening, it all, he starts to slowly transform us and to give us that peace that passes understanding and to help us to trust. Sometimes I say, just help me trust you more with everything that's going on. I have to say, it's very different on a Tuesday. Now, on a normal, I still have a normal teaching day on Tuesday. I do teach on Tuesdays. I'm still very tired when I, when I come home. But on Tuesdays, I come here for a prayer meeting at five o'clock. There are not really a lot of us that come, but God always shows up. And after an hour of waiting on him and praying for the church and looking at what he's been doing and seeing the threads of what he's doing on that day and then you see what he does the next Sunday and you see how they tie in, it's really exciting and refreshing. It's a great way to spend an hour. And so often when I drive out of here, I feel a really special sense of joy and a sense of God is at work. He's doing something. He's doing something with our church. He's here with us. So that's, that's a time I really value. And most people would say, well, why would you drive somewhere extra during the week? You already do a lot. But that time is very special. So if we look at 2 Corinthians 9, verses 8 to 11, it says there in the message, God can pour on the blessings in astonishing ways so that you're ready for anything and everything more than just ready to do what needs to be done. As one psalmist puts it, he throws caution to the wind, giving to the needy in reckless abandon. His right living, right giving ways never run out, never wear out. This most generous God who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more than extravagant He's more than extravagant with you. He gives you something so that you can give it away, which grows into full-formed lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way, so that you can be generous in every way, producing with us great praise to God. We need to trust God that he can use us too, that he can use us with other people. It's been very easy in the last few years to go, you know what, I'm not gonna pray for people. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I've got my own problems. It's very easy to dis dismiss myself and say, I'm not in a great place. I mean, my initial thought was when I was asked to, to preach is, that's, that's insane. That's like asking the exhausted, tired people and the sick and normal disciples who weren't always wise to do amazing things. So God can use us too, wherever we are. So I think it's time for us 
to rely on God now because we've got space. And I want you to think of where do you need to strengthen yourself with trust in God? What are you trusting God for? Where's, where's that lack that you're feeling? Be it with your health or spiritually or emotionally. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you here now to move on us. Thank you that you delight in us relying on you and being dependent on you. That you don't want us to be dependent on our own strength or our own wisdom. And we look to you 